Well, when I first looked at this passage, you know, it was part of the Living Lectionary, I, I thought it was really odd that it would land here the Sunday right after Christmas, just two days later. Uh, but, you know, as I, I began to study it, it seemed uh, more and more appropriate for the last Sunday, the, the last time that we would get together as a whole church family to worship God together. Because it deals with the millennium of Christ. This thousand year reign that we probably have all heard a lot about and really don't understand much about. I think this passage has to be seen as inhabiting the same context as the whole of John's vision. The whole of Revelation from beginning to end. And here we have three episodes that are present. Verses 1 through 3 comprise the, the inception of the millennium, its beginning, while the last verses, 7 through 10, comprise the culmination of the millennium, its end. In other words, John's whole vision from beginning to end really deals with the time between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the end of this world as we know it, when everything has been said and done. There are three basic interpretations of this passage, and I think that's important for us to, to know just at the, the beginning here. Uh, the first is kind of the historic interpretation of the, of the passage uh, of the church, and it, it's basically that the, the millennium of Christ's reign is not a literal 1,000 years. Since, you know, a thousand years are as a day to God, we're dealing with a thousand years on God's calendar, on God's timeline. But rather, the time of this millennium reign is the time of the revelation of Christ. The time from his death and resurrection to now. We're in, in the, the millennium, in other words. It's the time during which the, the souls of those who have died in Christ reign with him. And at the end of the thousand-year age of the church, Christ will return, the general resurrection will occur, followed by the great judgment, the great white throne judgment, and finally all Christians will reign with Christ over a perfected and eternal kingdom on the new earth. So that's the first one. The second interpretation is relatively new. It started being interpreted this way probably in the the early 1800s, mid-1800s. And it uh, basically sees the present form of God's kingdom in the world, the church, moving towards a grand climax that will begin with the signs of the end of times, followed by the first resurrection that's known popularly as the rapture. The rapture will be followed by a great tribulation on earth, and that'll be followed by the destruction of the forces of evil and the reigning of Christ, a literal and visible reign of peace and righteousness over the earth for a thousand years. So that's the second. The last is probably the, the least popular, uh, but I think it has a good argument too. The final resurrection will occur, and the, that earthly kingdom will merge 
into the eternal kingdom as earth and heaven are renewed. Um, so basically, the earth is in the process of being Christianized. And at some point, the whole of the world will be Christian. There might be a few you know, dissenting individuals who aren't, but for the most part, the entire world will be ruled with peace and order. There will be stability. There will be prosperity because nobody's being selfish and wanting to conquer other countries and you know, so, so on and so forth. And so that will be followed by Christ's return, the resurrection, the final judgment, and eternity. It just kind of blends right in to eternity. And so there are many different versions of each of these three basic interpretations that exist. And I think all three have good arguments behind them. So if, if you hold to one and not the other, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. Because I have no way of knowing. Um, and this, this is one of those passages that I think it, it plays one of these really fun games that, that I like to call Stump the Theologian. So what I'm going to do is, is try to just give you the big picture. When we really don't know exactly how we ought to interpret a passage of Scripture, and we're all brothers and sisters in Christ here, and we all have access to the Holy Spirit who, who leads us and guides us in rightly dividing the word of truth, when we have a situation like this, it's probably a good idea to start asking maybe a more important question, maybe not so much what is being told to us here, as why are we being told this? What is the point of this passage from Revelation 20 that we've just read? Is it not to, uh, it's not to give us a timeline for the end of times. That's what it's not meant to do. It is not meant to give us a heads up or to warn us to be ready. It's not meant to do that. Rather, it has a twofold purpose. The first purpose is to show us beyond all doubt that all of us are guilty of sin before a righteous God. Every last one of us. Some people will debate that fact. They'll debate that sin is a, is a cultural construction that only comes about within a social milieu of values that we hold as a people. They say that sin is inherently subjective, as are our ideas of right and wrong and good and evil. It's all subjective. Most of us, I think, attempt to justify our actions on the same basis as, as that kind of logic from time to time, don't we? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, could, we can admit to that. When we justify our evil deeds as merely subjectively evil, but not really evil or wicked or wrong in the situation that we're in, but in doing so, we unthinkingly accuse God as unjust in holding us at all accountable to a completely subjective standard of right and wrong. 
The millennium shows that even a thousand years of rule by a righteous God and a thousand years of freedom from satanic oppression cannot force any of us to love and obey God against our will. The second purpose of the millennium is to prove beyond all doubt that we cannot save ourselves. So first, we've all sinned, and second, we can't save ourselves. That we need God's intervention, that we need salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. A thousand years of keeping the law will not condition us into a unfallen natural state. A thousand years of freedom from satanic oppression will not enable us to will ourselves into the liberated state of moral perfection. We'd like to imagine that that's the case. There will be peace. There will be prosperity. But in the end, only the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins and can redeem us to a right relationship with God. You can be the most moral person you want to be. It doesn't matter. If you are not dependent on the blood of Jesus to save you from your sins and to reconcile you to God, all the good deeds in the world won't do you a lick of good. It is not so important then to God what the end times will bring, what the millennium of Christ will be like, as it is important why there will be these events, the, the end of all of these events that, that's, that John's vision describes. Otherwise, we could all say, cool vision, John. That was pretty, that was pretty wacko. What were you smoking? Got any other neat stories? But I think we read, recognize how flippant that, that is. We recognize that Scripture needs, needs to be treated with more reverence. And that means that we focus on what God focuses. We like to, to focus on all of the, the timelines and, and carefully articulated sequence of events. You know, when will the rapture be, and, and how will it be, and, and, and who exactly is going to go, and who's going to be left behind. But dear ones, that is not what God focuses on. That's not where God's mind is. That's not what is really important to him. The millennium begins with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. So please hear me when I say, don't get hung up on this millennium as a literal or non-literal thousand years. That's not important. What is important, rather, is that we understand that it's not how long of a time is supposed to go by as what sort of time this is. The millennium of Christ begins with the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ which neutralizes Satan's total dominance and deception of humankind as Jesus wrests from his control the keys to hell and the grave. 
He has victory over those. The, the race of humanity is no longer bound in the clutches of Satan's oppression. The dragon's agents that enable him to make war on the church and to deceive the peoples of the earth, called here the beast and the false prophet, are cast into the lake of fire. They can't hurt anybody anymore. We live in a world where an alternative now exists to living in bondage to that dragon. To the deception of sin and our own evil desires that give power to Satan to control our lives. That alternative is the freedom of God in Jesus Christ. Now this, this hopefully will kind of help settle some things in, in your minds. It did for me when I, when I heard it. In ancient Hebrew theology, Satan did not yet exist in the people's understanding as an actual evil spiritual being, except maybe as a, as a personification. So Satan, when they referred to Satan, that was a personification of evil. The name Satan actually comes from the old Hebrew Ha-Satan which they understood as the collective rebellious nature of humankind that desired what it ought not to desire. All of us together creating Hasatan because of the waywardness of our own hearts, desiring what we ought not to desire. The ancient Hebrews would often anthropomorphize this idea. They give it human traits, in other words. Just as they did with God. They'd talk about God's arms or you know, God's hand being upon you or God being crowned with glory or sitting upon a throne. And of course, we know that God doesn't actually have arms or hands or a head to put a crown on or a rump to sit on a throne with. We use this, this metaphorical, this, this anthropomorphic language to refer to God because that, that's humanly speaking and it helps us understand God. And similarly, Hasatan would be given human-like features, addressed as a person, given personality traits. And the similarities between the idea of Hasatan and the later idea of Satan are remarkable. And, and you would expect that to be the case. And it's no wonder that it was so easy for the ancient Hebrews to come to an affirmation of Satan, the devil, as an actual spiritual being given over to evil, as we believe in the church today. But in their minds, Hasatan was not mutually exclusive with Satan. They existed side by side and fed off of one another. It was a common and an understandable thing when children, especially would blame Satan for their bad behavior. Well, the devil made me do it. And it was the, the duty of parents to teach their children to accept responsibility for their own actions. No, the devil didn't make you do it. You did that on your own. And at the same time, this provided the whole people, the whole Hebrew people, with a profound sense of their collective guilt and need for atonement and forgiveness for even the secret evil thoughts 
in their hearts. Even of the righteous people. And how they contributed to Hasatan in the world. And therefore to the collective sin of the people. Including its manifestation in individual acts of sin. And that's why we have things in the Levitical code like the scapegoat. Where the priest lays his hands in symbolic giving of the the guilt of the whole people to that goat. And then they send it off. And symbolic forgiveness of God for their sins. It meant that the people were not called to obey the law and to honor the ritual sacrifices so much as they were called to love the Lord their God with all that was in them. To love him mightily in word and in deed and to devote themselves entirely to him. Only by loving God as the first love of their lives could they conquer Hasatan and the devil. That was the only way. The millennium is also a time specially reserved for God's saints. The household of God's Israel, the spiritual people of the body of Christ, It is the time of the church in which we are vindicated and avenged upon the enemies of God. Now today, how are we avenged upon the enemies of God? Well, in God's backwards working love, we testify to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and to the word of God, that double-edged sword that cuts through the hate, cuts through the pride and the fear of those in rebellion against God and offers them redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ and the new birth of the resurrection. How amazing is that? What kind of vindication is that? What kind of vengeance is that? Vengeance that brings people who were once enemies of God and makes them his friends instead. And the culmination comes at the end, as most culminations do. Those who have remained in rebellion against God gather together with Satan at the end and surround the camp of the saints of God. And I want you to see two things here. First, the focus of this entire passage is the church. It's the saints. That's what God is focused on. This passage is about us. Here this morning, God focuses on the church who are his people, his children. And Satan's focus in this passage is on us too. He knows that we mean a lot to God, more than we can possibly understand. And so Satan is absolutely determined to do whatever he can to hurt God. We know people like that, don't we? You've probably met people like that.
In verse 7, Satan is released. He doesn't escape. He doesn't break out. He's released, and presumably by God, the very one whose word sealed him in the pit to begin with. Now, why in the world would anyone release Satan once he's been bound? That's crazy, isn't it? Why would you do that? But I think it has the purpose, again, of clearing God's name of any accusation of evil. Some people claim that since God allows evil, God is to blame for it. Because if God can allow evil, he can also prevent evil. And if God chooses not to prevent evil, he is choosing to allow it. Which makes him responsible for the occurrence of evil. God's purpose here is to show that despite binding Satan, people will still continue to engage in evil. They will continue to engage in rebellion against God of their own free will, apart from Satan's influence or control. We can't blame anything on Satan. Therefore, God has proved, not only has he proved righteous in judging them and sentencing them to the justice that they, des- that they deserve, but in fact, God is also proved to be unrighteous if he fails to do so. If he fails to exact justice. So Satan will be released in order to gather together all those who continue in rebellion against God of their own free will. For the purpose, this is Satan's design, his intention, to destroy the people of God. And at that point, after the siege of the New Jerusalem, God's fire will consume them all. What that means, your guess is probably as good as mine. And that's okay, because that's not the point of the passage. Satan will be cast into the same place as his beast and false prophet, the abyss, and will be, at that point, permanently locked up. There's no more releasing him on parole. For us here today, what's all this about? Why does it all matter? For us here today, we have no recourse. We have no deflection. We can't pass it off to Satan. We are responsible for the fact that we have sinned against the Holy God. We have sinned. Not just a collective we, but individually, I have sinned. You have sinned against the Holy God. And we've sinned of our own accord, but we've done more than that. We've contributed to the sins of others in that collective hasatan. And the satanic designs of the devil, devil in the world. These verses that relate John's vision that we've read this morning call us to repentance. They call us to turn from our wicked ways. Today, to take responsibility for the wicked deeds that we have committed. You and me, 
the actual wicked things that we've done, the actual wicked things that we've thought. That's sometimes why it's so hard to be silent for a little while because we're confronted with ourselves in those times. It's really easy to fill up all that time and space with busyness, isn't it? So that we don't have to think about it. These verses today in John 20, or uh, Revelation 20, written by John, call us to repentance. They call us to look at that ugly thing that we have in our lives, that sin that we treat like a beloved thing, like some kind of beloved idol that we fawn over, that we hide from others, that we hide from God, to reveal it to the light. in all its ugliness and to repent to turn away from it they call us these verses call us to place our sin at the feet of Jesus Christ Christ who takes away the sins of the world born that we might no longer die as we have remembered this this Christmas season So let us cast ourselves this morning on the mercy of God who loves us and made a way for us to be redeemed from destruction. Brands plucked from the burning. God's arms are open wide. Yearning to embrace us as a loving father enfolds his precious child. He's not waiting to squash you when you've done evil. You've already done evil. God's made a way for you to be restored, to be saved, to be delivered from that. Won't you come to him today? Let's pray.